Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 10 through verse 17 at the end of the chapter. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. And the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it for us. Thank you that we can have it this morning read in our own language and we can understand it. We acknowledge that we need more than human understanding, and so we ask you, O God, to minister to our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Teach us and train us, correct us, even rebuke us for righteousness' sake. Make us more like Jesus. Father, help us to be encouraged, even in difficult texts. Help us to cling more and more unto Jesus. Would you help me, O God? Help me, your servant. Would you keep me from error? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are my rock and my redeemer. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you have heard of John Patton, John G. Patton. He was a 19th century Scottish Presbyterian missionary, and he was sent to the New Hebrides Islands of the South Pacific. He was called by God to take the gospel to cannibal tribes on the island of Tana. And while he was there, if you know Patton's story, you know he faced severe persecution, persecution because of his faith and because of his work almost always under the cloud of death. One of his converts, one of his disciples, a former cannibal named Namuri, was preaching one day in a nearby village when a witch doctor approached him and began beating him with a club. Though badly injured, Namuri managed to escape and flee back to Patton's house. And Patton nursed him back to health and urged him, do not go back to that village. Don't go there and continue preaching. 
But now Murray refused Patton's advice. And with the words I'm about to quote, he assured the missionary of how Christ's blood had conquered the enemy and set him free to preach the gospel, even under persecution. This is what Namuri said. He said, when I see thirsting for my blood, I just see myself when you came to my island. I desired to murder you, Mr. Patton, as they now desire to kill me. Had you stayed away from such danger, I would have remained heathen. But you, Mr. Patton, came, and you continued coming, and you taught us until by the grace of God I was changed to be what I am today. He quote ends by saying this, Now the same God that changed me to this can change these poor Tanny's people to love and serve him too. I cannot and I will not stay away from them. I will do everything in my power to bring them to Jesus. You know, the story of missionaries like John Patton and next-generation converts like Namuri remind us of what we learned in Revelation chapter 12 last week, that the blood of Christ and the testimony of Christ's people are conquering forces, conquering forces that not only dispel darkness in this world, but also serve as reminders to the great enemy himself, Satan, that he is a defeated foe. And that no matter how hard he may try, he cannot, he will not be victorious over the church. This week we're going to continue our study of Revelation chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 10 through 17. Yes, we're overlapping a little bit with last week. But in doing so, I want us to see three realities, three realities that were not only true for those original hearers, those Christians living in the Apostle John's day, or maybe Christians living in John Patton's day, but that these realities, the truths contained here, are also true for you and me, for Christians living in this day as well. These three realities are going to make up our outline this morning, and if you're taking notes, Let me give them to you up front. So the first reality we'll look at is Christ's victory over Satan. Christ's victory over Satan. The second reality is Satan's attack on the church. Satan's attack on the church. And third, the church's perseverance. The church's perseverance against Satan's attack. Perseverance against Satan's attack. Let's begin with that first one. Christ's victory over Satan. You remember last week from verses 1 through 6, we were given a picture, the picture of a dragon. And the dragon was standing before a woman, and he was waiting to devour the child to whom she was ready to give birth. But when the child came, you remember what happened? He was caught safely up to God and to God's throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness. We then went on and we discovered that the dragon was Satan, the child was Jesus, and the woman was a representation of God's covenant people. We might say the church throughout all ages. 
And we also learned that since the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden, remember what happened? Adam and Eve fell into sin. God pronounced a curse upon the serpent. Remember that? You can go back and see that in Genesis 3, 15 and 16. And we learned that because of this curse, the serpent from that moment on all the way to the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, he had one driving ambition. His ambition was to cut off the godly seed of Eve, to destroy the coming Messiah, the one who was prophesied would crush his head. But he failed. He failed. Jesus did come in the flesh. Jesus was born there in Bethlehem, and he was triumphant over Satan in his onslaughts. He even overcame death itself as he rose again victoriously from the grave. And then what happened 40 days later? He was caught up to God and to his throne as he ascended gloriously to heaven. And so in correlation with Christ's redeeming, atoning work here on earth, we're told in verses 7 through 9, if you go back and look, about a heavenly battle that also took place. Remember the archangel Michael and his angels? They waged war against Satan and his angels. And what happened? Michael and his angels won. They defeated them and they expelled them from heaven, casting them down to earth where they can no longer stand before God and accuse God's people. You see, where Satan once had free access to the throne of God, and we talked about this last week, we looked over in Job chapter 1, where that was a reality, and we'll see another example again here in a minute. Satan was cast out, and he's relegated to only this realm. He's been cast down to earth. And now... The resurrected Jesus, the one whom we saw at the beginning of this book, ministering amongst the lampstands of his church. Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, stands as a shield, a shield for us, a shield against the accusations of Satan's many and varied things. And as a result, we see that triumphant cry that we just read in verses 10 through 12. Would you look there again with me? We can't read these enough. This cry, this loud voice. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. I wanted us to take time this morning and look at another beautiful picture of this reality of Satan's now being cast down to earth. If you have a copy of God's word, would you turn over to Zechariah? You don't know how to find Zechariah quickly. It's the next to last book in the Old Testament, right before Malachi. Zechariah chapter 3. 
Some of you may know this, others may not, but there are people who have devoted their life to the study of the Old Testament quotes and allusions in the New Testament. And there's whole volumes you can get on the New Testament's use of the Old Testament. And can you guess which book of the New Testament has the most quotes and allusions from the Old? Revelation, the book of Revelation. And here's another picture that we are to see. Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure garments or vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by, and the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven facets, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbors to come under his vine and under his fig tree. So here, the prophet Zechariah receives a vision A vision where Satan appears before the Lord to do what? To accuse the people. Joshua the high priest stands as a representative, a mediator of the people. And what's he wearing? Filthy garments. What is that a picture of? Sin. Sin. And what does the Lord do? He rebukes Satan. And basically says, watch this. And he takes off those dirty clothes and replaces them with what? Clean, pure. And then reminds him that there's coming a day when this will become a reality. When the Messiah, and you should recognize that term, the branch from Isaiah, the branch will come. It's a picture of Jesus' work to cleanse his people from all their sin. From a time when the Lord will say, according to verse 4, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure garments. You see, the point of this prophecy is that when this happens, when the Messiah comes and takes away the sin of the people once and for all, as he dies there at Calvary on the cross, all of Satan's accusations will be silenced. Satan will forever be repelled by the cleansing blood of Jesus. And like we, the case we made last week, he will have no accusation to bring because that record of debt that stands against God's people was nailed to the cross, set aside. He'll have no more claim on those who have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. 
no claim whatsoever. I share that with you because I want you to see that for us, for us, Christians today living on this side of the cross, that day prophesied in Zechariah's time has come. Satan has been cast down to the earth and now there is great rejoicing in heaven. Verse 11 again, we've conquered him. We have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Christ's victory over Satan has become our victory as we continue to triumph through him. That's the first reality that we need to see in Revelation 12. Christ has won. The second reality we're to see here in Revelation 12 is what happens next. What happens now? Satan's corresponding attack on the church. You see, though there's much rejoicing over Satan's defeat, there remains a jarring truth. He still wants to fight. He's not a dragon that's just tucked his tail between his legs and sulked off. No, according to verse 13, if you look there with me, when he saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, what did he do? He can't go after the child anymore, so he goes after the woman. He goes after the woman who had given birth to the male child. You see, he sets his sights on the covenant people of God. He sets his sights on the church, and he furiously attacks it. I was reminded in one of my commentaries this week about what happened in World War II when the Allied forces landed in Normandy on June 1944. World War II was as good as finished. And even though the German generals began appealing to Hitler, trying to get him to negotiate an end to the war, he wouldn't have anything of it. Instead, if you know history, you know he did the opposite. Filled with murderous rage against his enemies, he did everything he could to hurt them till the very end. An example of this is that rocket campaign, the V2 rocket campaign that he waged against England indiscriminately just firing, raining rockets upon England. And until those rocket sites were finally overrun, it's estimated that over a thousand landed in that country, killing many people and damaging the city of London. You have to ask this question, why would Hitler do this even though the war had been lost? Why would he do that? Verse 12 gives us some insight. Look at the end of verse 12. The devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Adolf Hitler knew that his time was short. He knew that his time was short, so he unleashed all he had left in a murderous rampage against his enemies. And in the same way, Satan also unleashes all he has left in a murderous rampage against the church. Why? Because he knows his time is short. He knows his time is short. And so he persecutes the church. He persecutes the church, not because he thinks he can take away the salvation that she enjoys. He persecutes her because he knows that he cannot take away her salvation. 
He's only driven to attack because of the pure malice that he has in the face of certain defeat. His murderous rampage is unquenchable. It's relentless. And so he wages war against the church. And next week, when we turn over to chapter 13, we're going to get some more insight into the nature and the instruments of his work against the church. But you get a glimpse of it in verse 15. Just a glimpse. What does John see? He sees a river of water pouring out of his mouth, out of the dragon's mouth. It's an attempt to sweep the church away. You see, his rampage is is like a flood that would drown us, just as Pharaoh sought to drown Israel in the Red Sea. You may remember back in Revelation 116, do you remember that great and wonderful picture? John sees Jesus and all his glory. And remember he saw a sharp two-edged sword coming from Jesus' mouth? Remember that? That was a representation of the gospel message that Jesus proclaims through the church. Well, here, in contrast, we're going to see that Satan and and his helpers are counterfeits. So here, in contrast, the, the flood coming from Satan's mouth doesn't highlight the gospel. It highlights lies and deceitfulness. He's the deceiver of the whole world, right? It's all kinds of false teachings. It's all those things that would seek to wash away those who do not build their house upon the firm foundation of God's word. Satan wants nothing more than to drown God's people and the gospel message with them. He wants it wiped out. This reality that we're going to talk more about in the coming weeks of Satan's attack on the church, it's a reminder, it's actually a wake-up call for each and every one of us. You are engaged in a real spiritual battle. It's real. Read Ephesians 6 again this weekend. You are in a battle right here, right now. Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And listen, he's seeking to harm us right now. Now, because he knows he cannot touch us in eternity. Richard Phillips, a commentator on the book of Revelation and a pastor, he says it well. He says, Satan seeks to thwart our earthly solitude because he cannot thwart Christ's saving of our souls in eternity. So though he's defeated, though he cannot, though he will not win, he still fights. He fights. As long as it takes before Jesus returns again in glory, he will not let up his assault. He will keep it going. And that brings us to the third and final reality we see here in chapter 12, and that's the church's perseverance against Satan's attack. I want you to remember that the book of Revelation is not just some book about doom and gloom. It's a book of comfort and solace for God's people. Revelation was meant to be taken up, to be read, to be studied, and yes, even to delight in it. Revelation is healing balm 
It's a nourishing feast for weary souls. Can you see the comfort in these verses? Can you feel the solace? Look at verse 14. We read there that the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished. The Old Testament often speaks of God carrying his people to safety on the wings of eagles. And just like he provided manna and water for his people in the wilderness after they crossed the Red Sea, so he will also nourish his church as we live in this wilderness, this wilderness, this place that in so many ways in the New Testament, so many other places in the New Testament, what's it called? The present evil age. Over and over again, God has delivered his people from the schemes of the devil, and over and over again, he nourishes them, he strengthens them through his word, through his spirit, through the church, as they are nothing more than pilgrims in this strange and barren land. There's an allusion here to Numbers 16. There's an an allusion here. You might remember that, the rebellion of Korah and the sons of Korah where they spoke out against Moses. What happened to them? The earth opened up and swallowed them away. And a plague came upon the people and it wasn't until Aaron ran into the crowd with that censer of incense that the plague stopped. You may not be familiar with that. I encourage you to read that this week. That's the picture that the original hearers would have immediately come to in their mind. This deceitfulness, this scheme against God's work pours out of the serpent and even the earth obeys God and opens up and swallows it away just as the picture here we have. That's what happens. I want you to go home with this. God does not forsake his people. God cannot forsake his people. He can't do it. He's promised to be with us. He's promised to deliver us. He's promised to bring us safely home to heaven. All the forces of hell can be unleashed against us, against the church And no matter how hard they try, they will not prevail. Do you believe that? Do you understand that? Do you know Matthew 16, 18? Do you know what Jesus said there? I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will build my church God will persevere his church against Satan's attack. Just think about it. In two of the countries most actively opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's many, we'll just take two, Iran and China. Did you know that's where the church is growing the fastest? And in a region of the world where militant Islam is spreading with what feels like unquenchable rage and fury, that's West Africa, 
the church is expected to be the most numerous in all the planet by 2050. And in countries where Christians have enjoyed some of the richest blessings and freedoms, the global West, including our own United States, the church is being refined as though by fire, and we need to believe will most surely emerge stronger and more committed to the scriptures on which the church was founded. You know, from the outside looking in, it might appear that the church is losing. But in reality, that's not possible. It's not possible. Because from the inside looking out, the church is already victorious. Through Christ and his victory, the church has already won the war. We've conquered through Christ in his blood. Look, I'm a realist. I always say I'm a realist. Megan's laughing already. Because I walk the rager's edge over a vast sea of pessimism, right? As a realist, I understand the defeatist attitude that so easily plagues many of us, myself included. If I'm honest with you, there's times when I, you can ask me, is the glass half full or half empty? And I'd be like, what glass? I don't even see a glass. Remember what the churches in Asia Minor were facing when John received this revelation and wrote it to them. Every word of it meant just as much to them as it does to us today. They needed to hear what we need to hear. The church will persevere against the attacks of Satan. Christ and his kingdom will not be thwarted. We are people of the cross, are we not? We choose Christ and count all else as lost. We take up our cross and we follow him. On those times where my realism <clears throat> or pessimism is not so high, I began to dream, imagine what it would look like if we all took this message to heart and lived as victorious. What if we recognize that though we live in an age of tribulation, and even here in the West, we might face more and more of it, it's actually much more blessed to take up our cross and to follow Jesus no matter what we face, no matter what the cost may be. One thing I ask myself a lot, and I'll ask you, what if I prized faithfulness even more than I prized comfort? What if I prized faithfulness more than comfort? What if Christ and Christ alone was the theme of my daily song? What if I ran into him who is the strong tower and the righteous run into him and they're saved, they find refuge? What if I did that more than I ran to my phone or whatever thing we run to for comfort? What if I ran to my ultimate source of strength encourage. And my hope for myself and for each and every one of us is that as we continue, and it's going to get really tough here, but as we continue our journey through these coming chapters of Revelation, we don't lose sight of who we are in Christ. Don't lose sight of who you are in Christ. And even more, don't lose sight of whose you are. Don't lose sight of who you belong to. You belong to Jesus and he has promised that he will bring you safely home. He will. 
He will bring you safely home no matter what you face because he is victorious and you are victorious in him. Amen and amen.